Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and now a Washington Post columnist. Today we're going to focus on two important topics from just the last couple days and their implications for the broader Mueller probe and congressional investigation of the president and president's campaign in 2016. We've got feds in New York and Washington, D.C. with us to talk about it. We're really pleased to welcome Mary McCord to Talking Feds for the first time. Mary's now a visiting professor of law and a senior litigator at Georgetown University Law Center's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, which seems like a very important thing to be teaching law students right now. But Mary was the acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice, the highest official for national security from 2016 to 2017. And she also served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general for the national security division from 2014 to 2016. Before that, she spent nearly 20 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. Hi, Mary, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Harry. I'm pleased to be here. We are also joined for the first time by Glenn Kirshner. He served, did Glenn, in that office for 24 years, rising to the position of chief of the homicide section, where I believe one Robert Mueller, after being the assistant attorney general for criminal, uh, returned to be a line prosecutor. Glenn served more than six years on active duty as an Army Judge's Advocate General prosecutor, trying court-martial cases and handling criminal appeals, including espionage and death penalty uh, cases. And Glenn, I assume you and Mary must have overlapped and you worked uh, together during your time there? We did, Harry, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, Mary and I were actually on the same uh, felony trial team in the mid-90s, and I can tell you, because I got to watch her try cases, she was something of a force of nature when she was in, in there trying cases. She was not to be messed with. So her, her talents then got were not put to their greatest use when she became a big bureaucrat in the big building? Is that yeah, right? it, it's no surprise she got tapped for bigger and better things, and I just right. continued to sort of toil in anonymity at the D.C. U.S. Uh, Attorney's yeah, Office. There we go. Nobody's ever heard of Glenn Kirchner. You're too gracious. <laughs> okay, and finally, we're delighted to uh, welcome back Mimi Rokosh. Mimi uh, is one of the sort of charter Talking Feds, and she is currently Pace Law's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and a legal analyst for MSNBC and NBC News, as is Glenn. Mimi was an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York from February 2001 until October 2017. So, look, let's dive in. We had a real flexing of muscles by a federal district court judge, Emmett Sullivan, in the Michael Flynn case. He has been the judge presiding over that case and recall that he previously postponed sentencing and was a little tough on Flynn, saying you better be able to document your full cooperation. Now, most recently, 
he has told the special counsel's office that they need to make a public filing of some of the evidence that concerns Flynn and his cooperation. So it seems to me, as you pull on this thread, it it implicates quite a number of of ongoing themes. But let's just start with what, what exactly is the information that is supposed to be made public by um, the 31st, and how do we expect it to be broader or different from the material that's in the Mueller report that describes it? Mimi, do you have a sense of that? So I think that what the judge ordered to be made public is, first of all, the actual transcript of a voicemail that was left by what's referred to what he refers to as Trump's personal lawyer. I think there's a lot of uh, at least speculation that that's John Dowd, who was one of his lawyers at the time. And also the actual voicemail recording that Dowd left for Flynn's lawyer, one of Flynn's lawyers. And the cooperation letter so, – so this stuff was originally referred to by the special counsel's office in their 5K letter that they wrote for Flynn and in this, this supplement that they filed recently where they said that Flynn had, had basically provided this voicemail and that he had been contacted by – I think the phrasing is people – close to or around the administration. So I'm pointing this out for a reason. In the Mueller report, it specifies that that Mueller is talking about a voicemail from one of Trump's attorneys to one of Flynn's attorneys that can be described as obstructive for for shorthand purposes for a second. The Mueller Yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of a pardon dangling uh, arguably, right? It's, it's a stay a, strong, uh, you know. We, we love you, strong. we care about you, and they may be an implicit message of, of uh, stay clammed up, yes? Yeah, it's it's a stay strong message. It's, you know, the, yeah. the, the president, you know, likes you and, you know, we, we want to keep it that way kind of thing. And then and then there's a subsequent voicemail where, uh, or conversation, I guess, where he says, where Trump's lawyer apparently says, you know, gets angry at the fact that Flynn's lawyer says, I can't share information with you anymore. We're not, you know, he's, he's, I don't know if he uses the word cooperating, but he says, we're not bound by this joint defense agreement anymore, which is a sure sign that someone is cooperating. What's a 5K letter? Uh, The letter supporting basically his cooperation to the judge saying he should get a reduction in his sentence for all of his cooperation. And so in the latest iteration of that, he refers to efforts to contact Flynn from people close to the administration. He doesn't specify the lawyer. So it sounds like while in the Mueller report, they talk about the lawyer and the voicemail, there may be other contacts, you know, from other people who is close to the administration. Is that the lawyer? Why didn't he just say that here? So I think we're dealing with a couple of different facts. And there may have been new facts to have come out just by virtue of the way that was phrased in that letter. But I, but I think we don't we don't know yet. Yeah. And let's stop and think about that for a second. This is, remember, information he gave that the special counsel is touting to the judge as, as cooperation. He was cooperating in their investigation. Well, what could they be investigating if cooperation here means the administration was reaching out to me saying the president loved, you know, still loves you and stay strong? Glenn, doesn't that have to be mean that 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 what they what that information was about was a potential obstruction charge against the president or people 
around him. What else could it could it be? Yeah, th- this part of it sure seems like they're looking into potential obstruction by the people that they they don't name, but they refer to in this most recent Flynn filing. And I'll tell you, Harry, my favorite part, I've got the letter in front of me, is they not only say that um, people close to or connected to the administration, that is the president, but also people connected to the Congress. I think that was yeah. a new reference. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you that's my favorite part because now I think that opens up a whole other potential avenue. Well, who in Congress might have been involved in trying to persuade Flynn, as Mimi said, to stay strong, don't flip, don't go on the president? You know, that I think probably had some Congress people tossing and turning, trying to sleep recently after reading that if they know that they were the people involved in trying to perhaps keep Flynn from turning against the president. Right. And I mean, what a tangled web that could be, because they're they're actually bringing a message from Trump. So presumably there's some kind of interaction, you know, maybe from the Trump lawyer level to, you know, fill in the blank, uh, Devin Nunes or, or whoever. And it seems to be to, you know, a whole kind of potential conspiracy on uh, obstruction. Well, what I mean, what about the fact that, you know, Sullivan is coming in and saying, I want this made public. But I mean, that suggests a whole nother avenue. There's this tussle between DOJ and and Congress, but at least to the extent it can be served up in a case where there's jurisdiction, you know, it may be both the press and the courts will have something to say about what how much of the Mueller report will be made public. Yeah, can I just add, um, and it's interesting, Harry, that we have a judge who's ordering things to be made public. Now, if it's in response to litigation by the media on First Amendment grounds, I get that. And Mimi filled in one of those blanks for me. But here's the other thing I'll say about Judge Sullivan. I mean, I was in the courtroom when he really took Flynn to task at that attempted sentencing hearing back in December. And I've litigated in front of Sullivan. And he marches, yeah, he's to, a the, tough guy, right? he marches to the beat of his own drum. And when he beats that drum, it's all about truth and transparency transparency. And God forbid, if somebody's engaged in governmental misconduct or shenanigans, he will tear you up. And I think it's those instincts that, frankly, make him a a terrific judge, even if he's unorthodox at times, ordering the government to do things that judges ordinarily don't order the government to do, like, hey, make these things public. You know, judges don't have a discovery right to evidence that the government has that it hasn't offered. And, you know, that's been a kind of a missing element in the whole drama. Think back to Watergate and the role played by Judge Sirica. Likely the same point as Glenn's making now, perhaps pushing the line of appropriate judicial behavior in the run of cases, but recognizing this wasn't the run of cases. You know, Sirica had a you know a lot to do with what happened in uh, Watergate. And an individual judge like Sullivan uh, perhaps could do the same. Of course, there is the possibility of an appeal. My sense is uh, that that won't happen here because it would be the special counsel that would have to bring the appeal. Does that make sense to you, Mary, that there won't be an appeal? Or is there a distinct possibility that the you know attorney general orders the special counsel to bring an appeal? What, what are the, what's the likelihood that this ends with Sullivan? 
I think it's it's likely to end with Sullivan, although certainly the attorney general could order the special counsel to to appeal this. I think what Sullivan was getting at, and I agree with what Glenn said, that Sullivan thinks, well, look, a lot of these documents were filed and provided to me before the Mueller report was made public. Now it's been paid, made public. There is a lot in the report about not only the call that the calls that Michael Flynn had with Ambassador Kislyak, but also about the pressure put on to him and the calls made to him from people associated with the administration, and as, and as Glenn just pointed out, also apparently with Congress. So by the way, we're talking about the special counsel and they're the litigating entity here. Everyone knows that Bob Mueller's work is done. The attorney general has said that we are finished with this investigation. And yet, obviously, the special counsel lives on. It was the special counsel that was litigating before Judge Sullivan and will continue to, for instance, on the Flynn case. That could be kind of confusing. What's the status, Glenn, if you know? And to what extent does the special counsel, even without Mueller, remain a litigating entity within the Department of Justice and a continuing force on the on the scene? That's a great question, Harry. And I don't think we precisely know exactly what Mueller and his team's role is at this moment. Now, obviously, they're still involved in the Flynn litigation. So there is still a component of the special counsel team that is up and running as a sort of prosecutorial organization. But, you know, lots of people, though, have been asking the question. I think, you know, we've just been discussing how does the team react to Sullivan directing that certain things be made public. Now, I fear that Barr may start to put his thumb on the scales of how these questions get answered. Not, I'm not so concerned about the Flynn litigation because that case is almost at an end. But, you know, we have to look at those 14 cases and matters that were referred to, among other offices, Mimi's old office, the Southern District of New York, and other U.S. attorney's offices. And I think people are rightly concerned about how Barr might oversee them. If those are legitimate referrals, and I know they were because Bob Mueller directed them to be referred, I think two cases and 12 investigations as listed in Appendix D of the Mueller report. Well, you know, once the uh, special counsel's office work is at an end, that's going to be, you know, handled by various U.S. attorneys' offices uh, to which they're, they're assigned. So is Barr going to let those things run their course unimpeded? Or, look, we've already seen him say and do things that make him seem more like a PR flack for the president and less like a true attorney general. Um, how is he going to handle those ongoing matters? I think that's a real yeah. open question. I mean, especially, you know, under the regs, he said if he countermands the special counsel, uh, he's got to report it to Congress, et cetera, and he never did it. But if there is no – if in his view the special counsel is no more – at what point does the special counsel step away? Yeah, I think that's happening right now. We saw that in the Flynn case, um, there's a docket entry in the case from April where a D.C. assistant United States attorney, Deborah Curtis, entered her appearance in that case, which suggests that, you know, in this case and probably some of the others that are kind of being farmed out to the U.S. attorney's offices or were already brought in different U.S. district courts uh, that are handled by other U.S. attorney's offices, that we'll probably start seeing AUSAs 
um, that work in those offices entering their appearances in those cases. And I'll also note with respect to Flynn that Brandon Van Grack, who had been assigned on detail to the special counsel's office and had worked the Flynn case throughout his detail, is now back at Maine Justice in the National Security Division. But that certainly means he's still available, and I would expect him to carry this case through and work with Deb Curtis uh, to carry this through to the end. So some of the special counsel detailees have gone back into other positions at the Department of Justice, where they're certainly available to continue in those cases. That's interesting. And to Glenn's point, it sort of means that the actual, to the extent there's any hand-to-hand combat involving those cases and Maine Justice and the Attorney General in particular, it will go through the individual U.S. attorney. You know, I've been in this position. There are stronger and weaker U.S. attorneys and ones that can be immediately <laughs> rolled. And then there's, you know, the Southern District of New York. It might, it might uh, really depend on that kind of dynamic. Okay. One other thing that struck me about the Flynn evidence, we know that, that the attorney general gets the report uh, on a Thursday, say, and by Sunday is ready to pronounce and does pronounce, uh, co- clearly contrary to Mueller, that there is no provable obstruction case here. But presumably, I mean, it's remarkable that there'd be time to go through the 448-page report, but now we're talking about additional evidence, not in the report, that, as evidence does, gives a more, paints a more vivid picture of certain things and maybe helps explain why Mueller saw it one way and Barr and, well, but also Rosenstein saw it the other. Does this kind of evidence uh, indicate an overall sort of flaw in what has already seemed a very questionable kind of endgame from the uh, attorney general and deputy attorney general in reaching their conclusion? You know, no. You know, a lot of people were critical of of Barr when he admitted that he hadn't, you know, gone through all of the evidence. I I, I think there's different answers to that. But, But I think the short answer is, even just what's in the report about what the conduct towards Flynn by Trump and his lawyers is enough that it merited certainly more than the treatment Barr gave it of no obstruction. Now, I will say, so when this news came out, the you know there was breaking news and people on Twitter saying wow you know Trump tried through his attorneys tried to get Flynn not to cooperate I mean that that was sort of the headline and then it took a couple of hours for people say wait a minute wait a minute we knew this already it's in the report it's on page one twenty one of volume two and you can see if you go look at it now I mean there it is there's the quote from that voicemail so yes as I said earlier in the beginning of this podcast to your first question there were some new things particularly as Glenn pointed out the part about Congress. There's perhaps new people implicated in in the information that came out most recently from Mueller. But the gist of it, the idea that people were trying to stop Flynn from cooperating with this, you know, hang tough kind of talk is in the report. And I think what this highlights is that this report is so chock full of 
corrupt conduct and conduct that in layman's terms is obstructionist, right? And and that in the terms of high crimes and misdemeanors is obstructionist, that even if not enough for Mueller to charge, and here Mueller said, with respect to Flynn, by the way, he couldn't get to a lot of the evidence that he needed for the intent element because it involved attorneys and he wasn't going to try and pierce that veil, which is a cautious prosecutor for you. Um, other prosecutors might have, but that's the tact he took. Yeah. So so Flynn isn't even the best example for a criminal prosecution because of the attorney-client privilege potential issues. But the conduct, when you just look at it, you know, and it's highlighted in the way that Mueller's most recent filing did and the judge's order did, makes people go, whoa, and, and, and reminds you how much is in this report and how much we've lost sight of it. That you know, I, I think because of all of the legal battles uh, that are going on, the drama over who's going to testify and when and who's resisting what, we forget about, or I don't know if we forget, but but it's harder to keep people's attention on the actual conduct that is in this report that is so, I'm going to use the word corrupt for shorthand because I don't want to have to say criminal because it, it almost doesn't matter here in what we're talking about. Just really bad conduct. And when you focus on any one incident, a lot of people who sort of have brushed this off or, you know, think there's nothing new, I think are pretty stunned at it. And Harry, can I give Mimi the hallelujah chorus? Because that's what we need to go back to as she's yeah. the report. It's like a high crimes and misdemeanors jamboree when you read volume two. I mean, it, it just <laughs> it drives me as a former career prosecutor crazy. Mimi and I could walk into court and prove multiple counts of obstruction of justice against the president. Now, OLC says, no, you can't because we're not going to let you. It's an ill-advised policy, and I hope we see some reforms moving forward. But there's so much criminal conduct. There's so much constitutional misconduct that I think satisfies the high crimes and misdemeanors burden. But we're just not paying attention to it because Bill Barr stepped out on day one and said, nothing to see here, folks. I declare he's innocent and exonerated. And reality has forever been trying to play catch up. I mean, for gosh sakes, he told Don McGahn, fire special counsel. And when McGahn said, I'm not doing it, he said, then create a false document saying, I never told you to do it. Really? Really? Yeah. Who? Who would not prosecute that case? Well, so first, Mary, do you basically agree? And if you do, do you have, you know, you some uh, uh, intuition about why it is that it, the, you know, the conduct that strikes former prosecutors as so clearly chargeable seems to leave at least broad portions of the public, leave alone the Republican Congress, kind of almost indifferent. Well, I'd agree with everything that Mimi and Glenn have said. I mean, I think, you know, reading through, and in fact, I signed on to the letter that so many uh, prosecutors around the country signed on to saying that, you know, were this not the president of the United States and under the OLC memo, not indictable while he's sitting, granted, no court has said that, that's just an OLC memo, that that there would be multiple uh, chargeable offenses. I agree with that entirely. I think that Bill Barr set out to... uh, 
create a narrative on his, you know, very quick four page letter to Congress that he uh, sent just days, just really, frankly, within, you know, almost hours of receiving the report was very deliberately intended to make sure that many people, in fact, people who, you know, aren't inside the beltway, like so many of us who are, you know, steeped in this stuff, who read about it all day long, every day, that those people would just take his word for it and be done with it and move on with their lives and, and, and not and not pay attention. And you think that sort of worked, basically? I think that for a large group in the country that has worked. If you talk to people uh, in other parts of the country right now, I think a lot of those folks are saying, we're worried about the economy, we're worried about this or that, and they're not, they're not focused on this. And I think that was exactly what Barr intended. I also think it's, it's even though he he said uh, then, and he said in his press conference three or four weeks later, again, I think trying to create the narrative before he actually, you know, produced the report to the public, um, I think he he even though he said that he did this he reached this conclusion based on the report and the evidence and consultation with Rod Rosenstein i think there and not on his previously unsolicited 19 page you know opinion letter that he had sent to rod the previous year it's right. hard to believe that he wasn't influenced by his own view as a legal matter that the theories of prosecution here were not sound. And that's the statutory and constitutional issues that were addressed by the Mueller report um, at the end of the report, really rebutting point by point almost every argument that Bill Barr had made when he before he was the attorney general in his unsolicited letter urging Rod Rosenstein and others to reject any theories of obstruction along the lines as the very theories that we now see in the Mueller report. So it's hard to believe that he was not influenced by his own legal opinion that those theories were not sound in reaching his conclusion. There was nothing here that would rise to the level of a criminal offense. In, in your question to Mary, the premise you stated was that, you know, m- that Americans are sort of shrugging their shoulders at this. Um, and, and yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I that's the premise I want to push back on. I guess what I'm trying to say is Please, I think most yeah. Americans don't know what the conduct is. That if they're shrugging their shoulders, it's because they're 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 not. It's not being put in front of them in a digestible way. I think when you isolate it, for example, this Flynn conduct, I think people do have quite a reaction to that. I think when people actually digest the report. They they actually are shocked at it. So so I think that's part of the problem here is everyone keeps waiting for public outrage before impeachment you know proceedings begin, and yet I don't think that outrage is ever going to come unless people actually get to digest this. And it may be that the only way that's going to ever happen is with hearings with live testimony. Yeah, I mean, so I think this is an excellent point. I was going to basically echo what you had said before. I think it partly explains. Uh, what seems uh, like a kind of a quixotic move of the Democrats you know, right now reading the entire report or the tussle over um, witnesses. There's just no substitute for having, as as we learned in Watergate, having someone show up under the lights and say things and people actually focus because it seems a ambitious undertaking to actually have what, you know, individual reading groups take take uh 
the Mueller report in chapters. But I, I wanted to second what you're saying, and not simply for casual observers. I felt the same way. In general, the report came out. I gave it a very quick read, and I was left with a general sense of some very bad conduct. But each time... I zeroed in on specific instances and thought about it as a prosecutor. Is there a case here, there, in each of the 10 ones? Just like what you're talking about with Flynn, it was like, of course. And, and especially the points that Glenn just made, the, the points involving McGann seem, seemed so, um, straightforward. And, and, but I think even we as prosecutors and, uh, or as close observers, are struck when you really bear down. There's a sense, a 448-page report comes out and there it's got a general bludgeoning effect. And then you take a step back and a deep breath and bear down on individual incidents and the um, gravity and criminality of the behavior comes much, much clearer. All right. Well, among other things, we're going to see specifically how this plays out by May 31st when the material is supposed to be made uh, public unless special counsel tries to appeal, which I think we all agree is unlikely. Now it's time to take a moment to explain some of the terms and relationships that you hear about in this podcast and on cable TV in a segment we call Sidebar. Today, cartoonist and podcast pioneer Scott Johnson will explain impeachable offenses. Scott is basically a living legend in the podcast world. He also is a comic illustrator and creator of the First Order, as those of you know who have seen his panels about gaming, Star Wars, family, and all the ways we muddle through life online and off. But he published his first podcast in 2003, and today he co-hosts many podcasts, including the award-winning gaming podcast The Instance, The Morning Stream, and Current Geek. So here's Scott on what constitutes an impeachable offense. What is an impeachable offense? The Constitution says that, quote, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote. Treason and bribery are pretty clear, but what does other high crimes and misdemeanors mean? Looking to older English law, the term high crimes refers to crimes against the state as opposed to fellow citizens. So high crimes might be those like obstruction of justice that strike at the heart of the government. Alexander Hamilton gave a slightly different sense in the Federalist Papers, describing impeachable offenses as political crimes for those that involve a violation of public trust. So for example, crimes that involve the misuse of public office like corruption and bribery might be impeachable. A very different sense of the phrase comes from looking at what Congress has impeached people for in the past. At least 19 federal officials have been impeached and eight convicted. Some impeachment grounds sound familiar, things like treason, accepting bribes, obstruction of justice, and income tax evasion. But officials have been impeached for borderline conduct like filing false financial disclosures, serving under conflicts of interest, and showing favoritism in appointments. Congress has even impeached some officials for things that are not crimes at all, like intoxication and arbitrary official conduct. The Supreme Court has declined to weigh in, saying that the issues regarding impeachment fall into the political question doctrine. In other words, the court has held 
that Congress is the sole judge of impeachment and the courts will not second-guess its decisions. Gerald Ford famously said, High crimes and misdemeanors is, quote, whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history, unquote. And unsatisfying as that is, it may also be the best description of the law. For Talking Feds, I'm Scott Johnson, cartoonist, designer, illustrator, and podcaster at frogpants.com. Thanks very much to Scott Johnson. He's on Twitter, at Scott Johnson, and you can head over to frogpants.com and check out Scott's Extra Life comics. They're a welcome break from uh, much of the very sober news and pace of life today. Back to it. The other big development of the last couple days was this, even uh, for the president, incendiary and over-the-top tweet saying the people who originated the probe of him and the, and Russia's interference in the election committed treason and suggesting long prison sentences. And now he's no longer quite the voice in the wilderness because at least in certain important ways, he seems to have the imprimatur and support of the Attorney General of the United States who in the last couple of days gave interviews on Fox and Wall Street Journal echoing some of these talking points. So let's start with his quote. So Trump says, my campaign for president was conclusively spied on. Nothing like this has ever happened in American politics. Treason in cap, all capital letters means long jail sentences. And this was treason. What would you say is the actual mindset now within the Bureau generally, and just among the key actors, the Andrew McCabe's and Lisa Page's of the world that Trump and his allies on the Hill are plainly targeting? Are people uh, irate? Are they afraid? Are they just, you know, I- ignoring it? What, what effect does he, do you think this is actually having? So I, I can't tell you what the reaction is to treason comments, but the the tweets today remind me very much of the president's tweets in April 2017 when I was actually still in the government when he uh, famously said that he had just learned that his wires had been tapped. Um, and it was an outrageous comment, and it's very much of a piece of what he said today, that his campaign was conclusively spied on. There's, of course, been nothing to suggest either of those things. And I think that what we've seen in the interim between April 2017 and now two years past is that what first I think many people in the government thought was just ridiculous, we have seen it. You know, the constant attacks on law enforcement, the constant attacks on FBI, career, DOJ as being deep state, the intelligence community as being deep state, and then now, of course, calls, frankly, for, you know, long jail sentences, is there, you know, there has to be a chilling effect that this starts to have on the people that have literally spent, in many cases, decades of their careers serving the United States and um, doing what they have always felt is the right thing, given the circumstances presented to them. And although I don't want to speak too particularly in, in, about the origins of the investigation, because I, of course, was in the government at that time. I mean, there is an investigation ongoing by the Office of the Inspector General, Mike Horowitz's office. And so the idea that Barr would feel the need to kind of jump ahead of that and assign 
a, a separate, you know, prosecutor as counsel to look into this even before Mr. Horowitz finishes his job, I think probably is alarming to people. It's a little alarming to me. Um, there's there's been congressional investigations. There's yeah. an OIG. Well, there's also there's already another U.S. attorney doing one. We don't know what he's been doing, but the, yep. the, the U.S. attorney from Utah, John Huber, you have to wonder what possible facts do, does he think still need to be investigated? Um, and uh, he has, you know, without going as far as Trump to say there's, well, of course, we know I, it's certainly not treason. The Constitution says it's not treason. But, but you know, charging any crime, he, he does leave it open-ended in a pretty foreboding way. Here's what he said in response to an interview question within the last few days. Do you smell a rat at this point? But here's what Barr says. I don't know if I'd describe it as a rat. I would just say that the answers I'm getting are not sufficient. So, I mean, who the hell knows what that means? But it's certainly consistent with a suggestion that there is an overall, you know, cover up of suspect behavior and really a very far from a vote of confidence in the, you know, the the troops here from the attorney general. By putting this in the lap of another of a of a US attorney in this way and talking about it publicly it is 100% trying to set off i think almost intentionally alarm bells that there was something so bad that it might rise to the level of criminal conduct in the fact that the investigation was open to begin with when Everything we know publicly tells us that, of course, they had to open this investigation, and it was not an investigation of the Trump campaign. As Trump keeps saying, it was an investigation of Russian activity, and people in the Trump campaign or people who were in the campaign and then left, actually, kept putting themselves in the sights of those investigators by having all these interactions with Russians. So it was a, a predicated more than predicated investigation that was, you know, lawfully began. But again, I just I think it's worth highlighting sort of the difference between an Office of Inspector General investigation and what that purpose is versus a, giving a case to a U.S. Attorney's Office. It, Harry, can I follow up on a point Mimi made? So uh, I'm usually a half a glass half full kind of guy, but I'm going to go really cynical following up on Mimi's point. You asked a few minutes ago, Harry, what facts is Barr trying to uncover by directing this U.S. attorney to open an investigation? I don't know that he's looking for additional facts. I think he's looking to have an open investigation so that the president can take advantage of that, can exploit it, and can say, you know, this U.S. attorney is looking into the spying that went on. And it it, it is the fact of the open investigation that I'm afraid Barr will now hand to the president on a silver platter to exploit, not the outcome of that investigation, which will probably be nothing untoward or improper was done. Well, and of course, if he's doing it for that reason, I mean, I I hope people understand that that's exactly what you don't want. You you don't want an attorney general uh, opening, directing investigations for political reasons. And this would be sort of, you know, the the quintessential example of that, if, if that's why, which which I agree, it looks like that. Which conjures up the notion of Barr not having to grapple with the word suggested when he was asked, did Trump or the administration tell you to open an investigation? He said, I don't know. I'm grappling with the word suggested. 
Yeah. I mean, it, what, it, even whether or not it's his intention, it's certainly the result, right? Uh, the uh, Dunham, the the U.S. attorney, is is well regarded, but he's in the past he's done this for different attorneys general, and he's been pretty methodical and takes a while. And if the, if the same thing happens here, that means this talking point is going to be red meat for Trump on the campaign trail all through 2020. And the president, as we saw in today's tweet, isn't going lim- to limit himself to saying there's an open investigation today he says i was my campaign was conclusively spied on right so he he takes everything another few steps further than uh even the reality so does everyone think then that this investigate the investigators theme is going to have real legs that as long as the shifts and cummings and nadlers of the world are doing investigations you're going to hear republicans and fox news beating on this drum uh you know continually for for months it's a way to distract from volume two all of the misconduct that we saw documented by bob Mueller in volume two of his report everyone agree with that i i agree with it i mean i i do think you know that this sort of goes back to your first question that trump's tweets about the investigator and statements right he makes them uh vocally as well, about the investigators and the witch hunt and all of that. For a while, I think a lot of us just started sort of shrugging them off, rolling our eyes. But now when you add into the mix the power of the attorney general and, you know, put this investigation part of it aside for a second, I mean, just the terminology that he's using that seems so um, symbiotic with Trump's terminology, right? He really, he goes out of his way to defend Trump and he goes out of his way to raise questions and be critical of people in the Department of Justice and the FBI, he being Barr, who is, you know, the head of it. And so it, it when you put those things together, Trump's statements and this whole idea just look less harmless to me and much more frightening. I think it's also notable that Rod Rosenstein is not saying the Mm. kind of things that Bill Barr is saying. Unfortunately, Rod Rosenstein's not there anymore. And I think it's also interesting to consider that the, that the person who is, has just been confirmed to take the place of Rod uh, as Deputy Attorney General is someone who has never worked in the Department of Justice, has never prosecuted a case, uh, comes from the Department of Transportation. I don't know that much about his other history, but it does start, and I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but it doesn't really sound like someone who's probably going to push back very hard or question very much the things that um, Bill Barr is doing. Yeah. So this is Rosen, who was just confirmed uh, in the last uh, couple days. And he he doesn't seem he seems has a reputation as a good manager, but won't be a counterweight on especially any of these criminal positions. We could do a whole nother show focusing on Rod Rosenstein. And maybe we will, because there's still going to be the point that he apparently, like Barr, will need to explain his judgment that nothing uh, crossed the line here uh, when, when he really you know, has the experience as a prosecutor and the experience with the, the probe to, um, to seem to see otherwise. Okay, well, um, I think that's all we've got time for. I, it does seem to all of us that this is going to uh, continue, and it really feels like a tale of two cities. It's a whole area that just, to many of us, certainly to me, seems like uh, Looney Tunes, because the the predication, as Mimi says, seems 
you know, manifest? And really, what were was the FBI supposed to ignore it? Oh, and by the way, look what the investigation turned up. This has been really illuminating on both counts. Thank you very much, Glenn, Mary, and Mimi. We now move into our final little segment where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Tracy Marin, who asked the somewhat foreboding question, will we, America, be okay as a nation after Trump? And uh, five words or fewer, starting with Glenn. We'll survive this criminal president. Mimi? Yes, our institutions are strong. Mary? Okay, but forever changed. Yeah, and I'll say yes, only after a while. Okay, thank you very much to Mary, Mimi, and Glenn. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system and federal prosecutorial practice for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Matthew Flanagan. Thanks to Ashley Westerman, Corey Fujikawa, and the Radio Art Studio on the Upper West Side in New York City. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Special thanks for our sidebar today to Scott Johnson. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.